So weirdly, I don't know why I did this, but I started watching Undeclared this past week. Oh, I loved Undeclared. I've never seen it. I've never seen it. I used to have copies of Undeclared, but I lost them at some point. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that we'll say that much. You'll say that much? Yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> I had some digital files of Undeclared okay. at, at one point. Yeah. Okay. You, you, you definitely got like in the right way um mm-hmm. no yeah i bought i bought i it's it's been on my stack for a long time like i, I have the like heart because it can't really stream it anywhere like on like a, a netflix service. had it for a very short amount of time okay. and, and, and i told like I everyone you're i right. knew to watch yeah. it yeah um it's probably like 2012 or 2013 yeah. and i told everyone i knew to watch it and, and then no it like did, just it disappeared pretty pretty quickly i've been watching it um because uh i i have actually the dvd of it and it was uh, it's been like on my like because I have like a, a a certain compartment like in my like drawer of like just TV stuff that mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't know if I ever need it because everything's streaming, but everything's not streaming as we find out. And Undeclared it's one of those I have. Like, I should watch. So I, I love Freaks and Geeks. I've always heard this is kind of like a college type version of that, but a little more modern. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'd go that far. It's not it's well, not it, as well, dramatic yeah it's a little bit more sitcomy it's a it's a light it's a lighter show yeah they kind of i think i think they kind of learned from freaks and geeks to kind of round the edges off a little bit yeah um but yeah great great cast it's always i always love when i can show people like clips of it like just to see charlie hunnam like blows their minds it's (laughs) why it's honestly wild to see him in that show because i'm like oh Charlie Hunnam, interesting. Um, and the guests, the guests are, are the just guests so are much fun. wild. I was like thinking at one point because there's one point like, oh, Adam Sandler's doing a concert here. I was like, there's no way they're going to show Adam Sandler, right? <laughs> and then it shows, and then Sandler's in it. And I was yeah. like, how can you have like Sandler at that time is like one of the biggest stars in the world, and you would think if he pops up on this like show, it would be like a massive thing. And what's and again, this shows you how much TV has changed is that if this show came out today with these ratings, it would be like a massive hit for a network. Mm-hmm. Like it's it averaged like seven million, six, seven million views a, a episode. And that's like a failure in 2001, 2002 era. But yeah, it's wild to see like because it's also you have like the carryover of uh, of Freaks and Geeks, but you have like people like uh uh jenna fisher popping up like uh the will Mike, ferrell episode is will ferrell hilarious. episode was, was hysterical when he's writing all the papers for them yeah. and he's like he's like just hopped up on speed basically the entire time <laughs> is it is it the <clears throat> i'm sure i know jeffrey arend is he's he's in the episode where he like keeps doing impressions all the time yes, uh, yes. The, yeah I was telling someone about that yesterday. I was like, there's this episode in the show Undeclared. And I was like, this guy who just keeps doing impressions. And it's like, he's, and, and like, Charlie Hunnam's like telling his, his friend, like, hey, you shouldn't date him. Like, he's, like, you probably shouldn't date him. He's like, no, he's really cute. I want to date him. He's like, okay, I warned you. And it's like, <laughs> and he's just like, yeah, n- nice to meet you. Like, he's Jimmy Stewart. And, mm. and he'll do like, just all these random accents. Like, he, I, the, my favorite part was when he's like, Hey, you're late. We're we're I'm missing the Mike Myers biography, and like he's like watching the Mike Myers like E true like, and he's like no, he's like, m- like mouthing all the words, mm-hmm. and she's like, "Have you seen this before?" He's like, 
yeah, it's really inspirational. I just like really want to be like <laughs> like Mike Myers, and I yeah, it's it's great. It's it's really fun, and and the cast is great. I think Jay Baruchel's mm-hmm. great in it. Um, J- Jason Siegel's fun when he pops up in it. Yes. Oh, Jason Siegel's hilarious in it. Um, yeah, I I actually watched the pilot of of uh Seth Rogen and Rose Burns' new show this week. Oh yeah, yeah. And um and Carla Gallo plays like Rose Burns' like best friend in it. Oh and I was really? Like, all, that whole gang is still just kind of like tight. It's great. Yeah, and I and I'm liking her in this show. So I I I realize she hasn't really had as much. No, she all like Apatow always puts her in as yeah. like gives her like a scene or two in like all his stuff. She she pops up all over. But yeah, she's 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 really good in these. Yeah, she was looks like she was in Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Super Bad. Oh, she was period girl and super bad. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah. And she's the one that he hooks up with in uh get him to the greek when like everything when everything's freaking uh, out and he's on drugs or whatever and yeah she's she's always she's always very fun yeah and i see she's also neighbors one and two so that, that makes sense to why she's in platonic as well um but yeah that that's what i've been watching recently i went off a of succession got all that down i was like i need something a little bit lighter give me undeclared that's that's yeah. what i'm doing i just you always see. think of that that undeclared episode when charlie hunnam and seth rogan have the back and forth about uh You've got, you got mail. mail. Yeah, we talked about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, it was, that's that's so good. He's like, "What's your favorite movie?" Well, I tell people it's uh, I can't remember what the it was like. Kind of more dude brand movies, but my favorite movie really is "You've Got Mail." <laughs> he's like, I mean, Reg Ryan, Tom Hanks, Gregory are so charming, and he's like, and then Hunnam's later, he's like, he's just like, this movie sucks, and he's like, but but Gregory is really charming in this movie. <laughs> but speaking of "You've Got Mail" and Tom Hanks, Thomas, this is my segue to our movie today and that's catch me if you can before we do that my name is brand sparks i'm thomas horton and this is the nation podcast and this month we are talking about con artist movies happy to have thomas back on after his month-long kind of sabbatical mm-hmm. journeying around the place the world um so i talked with david last week about dirty rotten scoundrels and i asked him kind of what does he think about when he thinks about the con artist genre and i'm gonna ask you the same thing thomas what do you think about when you think about the kind of artist genre, the the kind of tropes, the kind of movies, just whatever whatever comes to your mind. Uh, I think about I think about the oceans movies for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think about that. The kind of the first thing that always comes to mind when I think about like con artists is like the the like family drama. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's like a like a holdover from Matchstick Man, but I mean you know, uh, Oceans Eleven kind of has that same thing about it's just like it's just got to be exhausting. Yeah. To be like related to a con artist or yeah. somebody who's who's always who's always on who's always like trying to pull something over on on somebody. So it definitely lends itself to to kind of family family issues which i you know i think we'll see see a little bit of that today but um but you know it's just always kind of fun like setting up a setting up a con setting up a a a flim flam uh the 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 lingo and and all that is it's it's um it's definitely a we talked about it a little bit when we did heist month. It's mm-hmm. like, what's the difference between a heist and a con movie? But I think if you like one, you you're gonna like the other because they do have yeah. kind of that putting a team together and, and yeah. making a plan. And then I feel like a lot of times the con movies are about like the plan not working out. But um, <laughs> sometimes 
where sometimes with the heist movies we said uh, it's it's the plan can work but then the fallout never works um i think i think one thing we kind of talked about last week too is like a lot of the con movies and not all but a lot of them have a little bit lighter tone mm -hmm. than say certain heist movies it's like it's it's almost in the realm of like a caper yeah in a way um this movie kind of feels definitely fits in that that mold it's very kind of breezy and fresh another one I, i i brought up too especially with Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and a few other ones that we'll talk about this month is the idea of perspective. And I think mm-hmm. this one, cause I think, I think my kind of idea with a con movie is that if you're from the perspective of the person doing, doing the like robbery or the conning, it's more of a heist film. Mm-hmm. But if you're from the perspective of the person being conned, it's more of a con movie. This one, the day mm-hmm. is a little different. It doesn't really fit that. But I think today with catch me if you can, perspective does come into play with the kind of two kind of lead roles even though tanks is kind of considered a supporting role as carl hanratty it's mm. still kind of a two-hander in a way and it's this idea and, pers- and the perspective kind of switches a lot in this movie which is very interesting but handled it handled handled very well but i think that comes into play with this and i think we'll see more of that as we go on but the, in terms of that like also the 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 variation of cons as like certain things that con artists develop that kind of reuse over and over again. They kind of have their tricks. It's like, I think Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, we talked about how like Michael Caine kind of has his go-to like at the, at the like poke or at the roulette table. And he wants to like s- pretend he's selling a ring to get this person to notice him or whatever. They have their reoccurring things. And I think with even Frank Abagnale and catch with Ken, he has his similar kind of tricks of the trade mm-hmm. that he likes doing. That ends up becoming a whole different career for him at the end. Um, so yeah, that's what we kind of talked about. That's our, our view of it right now. Today we're talking about Catch Me If You Can, released in two thousand two, uh, directed by Steven Spielberg, starring Tom Hanks, Leonardo DiCaprio, Christopher Walken, Martin Sheen, and I'll ask you, Thomas, since you know this movie very well too. What's Catch Me If You Can about? Uh, Catch Me If You Can is about young Frank Abagnale who runs away from home at 16 and kind of makes a makes a life of crime that mm-hmm. is uh, funded by his his abilities to forge checks. Yep. And and kind of the his his claim to fame as he was forging checks was he could kind of inhabit any role. And so he was able to get around a lot as a pretending to be a pilot and then pretending to be a doctor and a lawyer and was just kind of became this this figure that the the FBI was was trying very hard to catch in yeah. his like it's really just like two years. Yeah, two, yeah, two, um, three, yeah. That that this all went down and, and Tom Hanks plays kind of the FBI agent who's who's mm-hmm. obsessed with with stopping him. Yeah. And then a lot of great kind of talking about family drama stuff, the stuff with his parents, with Christopher Walken as Frank Abagnale Sr., um, the kind of possible uh, possible marriage between Brenda Strong and Amy Adams. Um, it's it's interesting, and we'll talk more about this as I go on about the history of this, but it's based, or I'll say inspired by a true story, I will say, is what I will say. Yes. Yeah. Is is why I will say because because that 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 phrase is a key point for later on um, with Frank Abagnale. There's been and well I I'll have quotes about this, but there's been like things about the validity or kind of the authenticity of all of this of like what actually happened, but it's a con movie and it's a con story, so. <laughs> I 
either way, someone got conned mm-hmm. with certain things because there was another article. I think two was it two years ago about like the the well this didn't happen, but also like Frank Abagnale says that certain things didn't happen. Yeah, I, lo- uh, I love uh, that article. I feel like they're like, yeah, we talked to like the TWA and they were like, no, this definitely didn't happen under our watch. And I'm like, would you guys admit it? That, 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 and that's, and that's, yeah, that's kind of what Frank Abagnale said was like, he goes like, look, look, not all the movies true. Not all the books true. Some of the stuff did happen. Some of it didn't like, and I, again, I'll have quotes for this, but it's also like, would these p- people admit they were like conned by a kid basically? Yeah at that point in time are like they're like oh we don't we don't have any like full officials and he worked with the fbi i was like it's the fbi i don't know if you i don't know how much they give out about who works there. i don't know so <laughs> i i think either way however you, you slice it there was a con involved in some way if it be if it you if it is you believe that frank abagnale's stories are not true um or you believe the stories and he conned people either way either way a con was involved is what i will say mm-hmm. is the thing um, so Thomas, you and I have like, I think preached the, pra- the praises of this movie for a long time. Um, I, I, I know I love it. I, I know mm-hmm. you, you have great feelings for it as well. I told, I said at the end of last episode, I feel like I did this whole month so we could talk about this movie specifically. <laughs> so what's kind of your history with catch me if you can, Thomas? Um, I, we saw my family saw this one opening weekend and I'm not really sure why we did. I I, I think, you know, it's like Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks is really hot at this point in time. Steven, Steven Spielberg. Yeah. I, I specifically remember we saw I remember going over to a friend's house where uh, some family friends and they had seen it on like Friday night. And I remember my mom asking them, like, is it OK to take Thomas? Because uh, mm-hmm. it was we were probably what like 10 when this came out it was i wasn't 13 yet yeah it was a pg-13 movie yeah you're 10 you're 10 Um, maybe nine and i remember them being like yeah you know there's like maybe like one scene um and so yeah we went to see it and i like was blown away i just loved the energy of it and i i was already a big like john williams fan obviously at Mm -hmm. that point and so yeah everything loved everything about it and then i think it was that summer i was at we were at a friend's we had some friends who had like rented out like a big beach house Mm -hmm. and we were over at their house that they were renting and they had like an original copy of the book like on like on a bookshelf and i was like can i can i have this can i like take (laughs) this and they were like yeah so i still have it at home i mean it is like the the the, like it's rare it's rare printing of it yeah Yeah. um doesn't it doesn't have leonardo dicaprio on the cover i'm sorry i'm I'm a very anti anti movie cover book person um but yeah and read that and was like oh this is even crazier because because they the, the movie definitely kind of polishes the the shine of of what this guy went through or or what he didn't go through um who knows um and then and so loved the movie loved the kind of the story of it all and then when i was in college or uh realized a friend of mine i was i was working with a friend of mine who was a graphic designer at the company i worked at and he was like hey man can you come help me out with this like 
portrait session i'm doing and i'm like oh what are you cool yeah yeah, yeah. and like help him carry his paint supplies because he couldn't park near the whatever yeah he's like yeah it's it's frank abingdale he like commissioned me to paint a portrait for him and i was like oh my god and so it turns out he lived in charleston mm-hmm. and um uh, both of his sons have like businesses in charleston and ended up kind of throughout my college years met frank a few times he he came and spoke at our like college film festival one year which was which was hilarious kind of the the q a um i always like to say like one one woman like like he's you know he's taking all these questions and this one woman is like don't you feel bad about yourself and he was like that was two years of my life i i worked for the fbi for like 40 yeah. <laughs> um but yeah so it's 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 been one that that as as i've kind of learned more about it i i just keep coming back to it as such a such a interesting piece and we'll dive into this of like yes this is the the bones of a of a story mm-hmm. but like also i think this is one of spielberg's most like personal movies yep and and it is so cool to kind of dive into the way that he tells this guy's story while also telling yep. his own story throughout yeah i didn't know if i want to tip my hand that early with this because like this was one i've always said for years before Fablemans came out, <laughs> um, this was Spielberg's most personal story. Like, mm. hands down, without question, this was it. Like, the way he directs it, it's you can tell it's coming from a personal place. He said it multiple times that, like, the big thing he says, like, oh, like, I get it because, like, when I was starting out, like, I conned my way into Universal Studios and pretend to be a director all summer mm-hmm. and just I learned the tricks of how to get through people and, like, how if you just don't tell people they probably won't ask why you're here and i was like okay so he's like he sees that element that he can kind of po- like take from the parental stuff is also there and, and again we'll get more into it as later because i have a few kind of comments on that um but yeah it's one that it's one that sneaks up on you as a great spielberg film is what i say mm-hmm. is that I feel like it was a few years ago when I was like making like a list of like favorite Spielberg films and I just started seeing like catch me can just kept kind of going higher and higher and higher. And I was like, like, yeah, yeah. You're like, okay. Like Jurassic park's iconic. And then you're like, Oh, but like, I really like rewatching catch me if you can. And it just keeps edging its way up the list. You're just like, I mean, I ET is great, but like, this is kind of more fun. Like this is like, (laughs) this goes like close encounters. Great this is kind of more fun. Like, it's like, this is, it's like, it's, there's just certain things about it where like, there's certain ones of Spielberg. Like, okay, this is like top tier echelon to me, but like catch me can like somehow I, I mean, I had this, like people thought I was crazy when I worked at the video store and I was just like, catch me can again, tip my hand very early. I was like, catch me can Spielberg's most underrated masterpiece. And they're just like, what are you talking about? I was like, go and watch it. I was Mm -hmm. like, what he is doing in that movie is to like just the way he's directing it shooting it the kind of storytelling aspects of it i think it's you can it feels like he's hearkening back to an earlier point in his life and Mm. and how he like approaches this movie it's like it feels like it's coming from a much younger i felt so about west side story is it feels like it's coming from a much younger filmmaker than what it is Mm -hmm. is the thing but you can just tell when you watch it that it's not because just the shot composition is incredible. I know I'm jumping way ahead. This is just <laughs> initial thoughts here. I'm talking about favorite stuff here. But no, and I also find a very interesting point in his career because 
it's right when Spielberg's about to make a switch, it feels like. Because it's right when the industry's about to make a switch. Is that you're about to see more CG, CGI heavy kind of movies. Even smaller films have some sort of CG element to it. Catch Me If You Can feels like kind of the last movie Spielberg makes where there's not really any like post-production CG element that's like really noticeable in it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like even Phelan's probably has some stuff. West Side Story has some stuff I know. But Catch Me If You Can feels like we don't like it's 2002. The ability's not really there yet. We're shooting this so fast. We can't really think about CG and visual effects. This is a very practical movie. And he, I don't know if he ever really gets this practical again after this film. Mm-hmm. So even like the terminals, his next movie and like he builds a whole set and then everything outside of it's VFX. So like he, he uses some VFX later on in that film, but here it feels like it's a lot of running and gunning is the thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's my initial thoughts. We'll come back to my Fableman's bit. Remind me, because that's like, I have specific parts where we're talking about like where it's like you can tell he's taking from his personal life and putting in mm-hmm. this movie. And I've read some of the script, and I think there's some things that he changes to make it more about his life than yeah. Frank Frank's life. Yeah, well, and I've also, I've I've seen at that q and I've seen people stand up and be like, did you ever patch things up with your father? And Frank being like, I'm fine with my dad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're good. And you're like, Oh, okay. All right. Well, where yeah. did that come from? <laughs> yeah. And you're like, Oh, I wonder where, I wonder who what filmmaker <laughs> put that in there. Um, but yeah. So let's dive into kind of how this movie gets into production. Cause it's, it's somewhat of a, I mean, it's a wild story in terms of we, it's weird. Last week we discussed how dirty rotten scoundrels went through a lot of different licensing issues and casting changes before it got to the bricks, big screen. And surprisingly mm-hmm. enough, Catch Me If You Can was no different. So it all starts in 1980 with the release of Frank Abagnale Jr.'s semi-autobiographical book, Catch Me If You Can, uh, as we talked about, about this young American con artist. In the book, Abagnale claimed he cashed $2.5 million worth of bad checks while impersonating a Pan Am pilot, a doctor, an attorney, and a teacher, which isn't really touched upon. It has like a little bit of the, the tidbit of the French class, mm-hmm. but he actually was a teacher at a college, I believe is what he says. Um, as we said, I say semi-autobiographical because around the film's release, Frank Avenel Jr. claimed that he only spoke with the book's co-writer, Stan Redding, I think two to four times over the course of the book's writing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He stated that uh, I believe he did a great job of telling the story, but it also is over-dramatized and exaggerated. So, so exaggerated. That was his style and what the editor wanted. He wanted, he always reminded me that he was just telling a story and not writing my biography. So right there, there's that. But either way, Abigail kind of told the story as part of his, I mean, part of a story and publicity stuff. Um, in 1978, Frank Abigail Jr., two years before the book came out, went on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and he told a story about being a con artist. And Johnny Carson, if you watch it, is like enthralled by this story of how he does these things. And he's telling specific elements or store or segments or sections that would be in the movie. And around this time when the book came out in 80, the rights were purchased by Norman Lear and Bud Yorkin. Lear was legendary TV producer of on the Mm -hmm. family, the Jeffersons and more Yorkin would later serve as a producer on Blade Runner. We talked about him on our Blade Runner episode as being someone Mm. who like tried to step in and fire Ridley Scott was one thing. Um, some reports say they wanted Dustin Hoffman to play Frank Abagnale Jr. 
1980. I feel like he's a little bit too old at that point in time. Yeah, I feel like Dustin Hoffman is somebody who has kind of the opposite of what what um, DiCaprio has. Yeah, I, I mean that. And when that's the whole thing with with Abagnale was he was like, when I was 16, I looked like I was like 22, 23. But like yeah. Dustin Hoffman has, I don't know. He look. He's. He, I feel like he's always looked exactly the right age that, yeah. that he is. Yeah. No, I, so I he agree. wouldn't have been able to do that. That like, oh, he's 16 now, and now he's yeah. like 20. And DiCaprio is interesting because I was reading how like at that point in time, DiCaprio was. They always comment on how DiCaprio looked old, looked older than what he actually was before this movie. Mm-hmm. But here he does a great job of being younger <laughs> yeah. than what he I actually it, is. I think it 100% works when he's like a 16-year-old boy. And yeah, then that scene when he walks into the, the classroom and decides he's going to be the teacher, you're like, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah I, could, I buy it. I buy yeah. it. Um, So Jorhan Lear had the rights, but two years later, they sell the rights to Columbia, who in turn sell the rights to... uh director producer writer hal bartlett bartlett is possibly most famous for directing producing and co-writing zero hour which was which became the little basis of airplane starring leslie yeah. nielsen uh another claim to fame for bartlett was that he directed a movie called unchained and while you might not know that movie you might know the film's theme song unchained melody which later became an international Ooh. hit we had an international hit when it was covered by the righteous brothers Mm-hmm. By some reports, Bartlett and his business partner tried writing several drafts of the script, possibly even hiring a, a certain a, spe- a specific writer to help write it, um, with Bartlett intending to direct it. But those would soon be the rights would soon be sold to someone else. Uh, I also heard that Bartlett passed away, and that's why I couldn't do it. But the timeline doesn't fully match up. Either way, the rights go to Michael Shane, Michael Shane of Magellan Films Entertainment, which some reports say had a deal with Disney's Hollywood Pictures to make the movie before it jumped over to TriStar Pictures. Uh, then in 1997, so now 17 years later, uh, the movie would be would move over to Paramount when Barry Kemp's production company, Bungalow 78 Productions, optioned Abagnale's book from Michael Shane, agreeing to make the film with them. Uh, Barry Kemp was the creator of such hit te- TV shows as Newhart with Bob Newhart and Coach mm-hmm. with Craig T. Nelson. Um, the trio of Shane, Kemp, and Shane's producing partner, Anthony, Rom- Anthony Romano, uh, hired Jeff uh, Nathanson to pen the film script once they optioned the book to DreamWorks. So finally, after 17 to 18 years, the movie finally ends up at <laughs> DreamWorks production, uh, DreamWorks Pictures. Uh, Jeff Jeff Nathanson, at that point, his big kind of claim to fame up, at, up till then, he did a Rush Hour 2, is what it was. Um, also, Speed 2 Cruise Control. Uh, mm. he, he would also later, Classic. he'd also follow this up with Spielberg, uh, the two years later with the terminal. Um, he do, he, he worked with Spielberg a few times. So at this point, because the book is now at DreamWorks, Steven Spielberg would step in and agree to produce the movie and not direct it. Mm. Spielberg's plate was too full because yeah, yeah, this is around that time. What, what were we talking about recently when I pulled up, uh, Oh, what was the last episode I hosted? I don't know. <laughs> it's been uh, a little while. It's been a, uh, we uh, talked. We talked about uh, Catherine Bigelow stuff. Is what it was. 
Um, oh yeah, when I when I pulled up that article that was like all the yes. stuff that was in the works at the time. Might, and, was it was it adaptation? Was it or yes, or, yes yeah, 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 yeah. It was adaptation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Spielberg was attached to like three or four things that didn't happen around yes. then. But this was this was around. Or yeah, it would have been around that time. So he was planning to direct either or both of Big Fish and Memoirs of a Geisha. Mm, yep. So DreamWorks yep. would look to attach david fincher to direct the movie now it's not clear to me if fincher fincher was officially attached uh or if he was just the front runner either way he was he was involved in the conversations for a few months before finally dropping out to direct panic room instead now Hmm. in july 2000 this is when leonardo dicaprio signed on to star in the lead role of frank abagnale jr DiCaprio was in a very interesting point in his career after having the massive success of Titanic in 1997. In 98, DiCaprio would star in The Man, The Iron Mask, and then Woody Allen's Celebrity before taking a two-year break. No notes. Five out of five stars, Man in the Iron Mask. (laughs) That's one of those movies that, like, I thought was fantastic until, like, one day I was just like, I wonder what Rotten Tomatoes has for Man on the Iron Mask. I was like, oh, no, people don't like this movie. I, I haven't seen it in a long time. So my sister had a poster of the man Iron Mask in her room because it was in the post in the post Titanic world. Everyone loved DiCaprio. And she had a poster of that movie in her room. Um, first two first two DVDs I ever owned were the the Disney Three Musketeers and Man in the Iron Mask. <laughs> uh, my first two were The Mummy Returns and Rush Hour 2 were my two first DVDs. Big sequels guy. Big sequels guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and... Uh, all, and then and then in 2000 uh he would take a two-year break and in 2000 he would return for danny boyle's the beach uh and then 2001 he starred in don's plum hmm he did didn't he a film that was actually shot between 95 and 96 before finally being released overseas very briefly a film you can't see anywhere nowadays call me text me <laughs> um so needless to say dicaprio was trying to transition to more prestige fare uh, the next director who would come on board for Catch Me Can was Gore Verbinski. Big Gore guy. I don't big, know. If I, know this yeah. is, I don't know if this is the project for him, but I'm a big I'm big a, Gore I'm Verbinski big, guy. Yeah, yeah. I know. Um, I haven't watched A Cure for Wellness. There's been like a resurgence of that movie of late with people. Yeah, now that Mia Goth is is like big. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Verbinski would stick around for a bit, but and he actually put together a cast for this movie to surround DiCaprio. He would cast. James Gandolfini to play Carl Hanratty. Okay. Ed Harris to play Frank Abagnale Sr. Yeah. And Chloe Sevigny to play Brenda Strong, uh, his his possible wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and the plan was to start shooting in March of 2001. But DiCaprio would have to postpone filming because of, because of his commitments to Martin Scorsese's film Gangs of New York. So because of that, Verbinski, not wanting to wait, dropped out. Uh, I ha- If I had to guess, he went off and did Pirates, Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl instead. Not a bad call. Yeah. Not a bad call. Yeah. yeah. Um, they would then go to uh, Lars Holstrom to, mm-hmm. to direct the movie in May of 2001, but he would drop out of the running in July 2001. Uh, we, that's, a, that's a whole other episode. <laughs> I feel like that is someone who had a lot of talent and uh has a wide maybe has not had the best trage- maybe hasn't utilized it you know yeah to the best of his abilities yeah 
And so sensing a possible stinker in a bad film, Ed Harris and Chloe Sevigny drop out of the movie. But Gandolfini stays on. And finally, Steven Spielberg, like I said earlier, was serving as a producer, says, you know what, I'm going to step in and I'm going to offer the movie to Milos Forman instead. Okay. Offers the Milos Forman. Apparently, Forman declines it. Spielberg then contemplates hiring Cameron Crowe to direct Hmm. the movie. And then finally, after just finishing Minority Report with Tom Cruise, Spielberg just goes, you know what, I'll just direct it. And he drops out Big Fish Memoirs of Geisha to make Catch Me If You Can. Now, when taking on the movie, Spielberg basically says, I had just finished shooting Minority Report and was in something of a dark place. I thought this would be a breath of fresh air for me. I enjoy that whiplash sensation of going from a film like Jurassic Park to a Schindler's List and now from Minority Report to Catch Me If You Can. You know, right there, just say those movies and you can retire. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, those are your movies and you're good. He says, selfishly, it was also an opportunity to work with a young actor I've always admired. That being DiCaprio. Mm -hmm. I have read reports. I don't know how true this is, but I've read reports that he was also interested in hiring Johnny Depp for the role. But stuck with DiCaprio. I don't know how true that is. um, But there's possibility Depp was was being looked at at some point for this role. Gandalfini, however, would have to drop out of the movie finally due to scheduling conflicts, the little show called The Sopranos. And that's when Spielberg would hire trusted collaborator Tom Hanks. Uh, It's reported that Spielberg was initially hesitant to offer the role Tom Hanks because Tom Hanks was a big, big megastar at this point. Mm -hmm. And he thought playing a supporting role would, he wouldn't be interested in. And Hanks said, uh, a good part's a good part. I don't really care. Um, Another producer that was heavily involved in the casting process was Walter F. Parks. Parks was the first one to mention Christopher Walken to Spielberg for Frank Sr. And Spielberg loved the idea because he always wanted to work with Walken. When casting Frank's mom, Paula, Spielberg wanted a French actress, so he had to audition actresses in France. But Spielberg just couldn't go over to France for that, for that one part. Instead, he called up one of his good buddies, Brian De Palma, who was living in Paris at the time because I think he was making the 2002 film Femme Fatale with Rebecca Romaine and Antonio Banderas. Hmm. De Palma read the script and liked it, and he asked Spielberg how he could help him out with the movie. So De Palma was asked to do screen tests with several French actresses, including Nathalia Bay. And Spielberg said he knew he wanted her for the role because it didn't... It knew he wanted her for the role once he saw her. It also didn't hurt that she was in Francois Truffaut's Day for Night. Francois Truffaut being one of Spielberg's friends that was also mm-hmm. in Close Encounters Third Kind. Spielberg would then cast Martin Sheen for the role of Roger Strong, the possible father, the possible future father-in-law to Frank Abagnale. At first, Sheen was unavailable to be in the movie due to commitments to the West Wing, but they somehow worked Classic. out worked out a schedule. I love all these like TV shows; they're like really <laughs> big at the time. Even showing you in early two thousands, you can still be in movies and also in TV. Mm-hmm. And speaking of TV actresses actors uh, for the role of the beautiful model or actress that Abigail sleeps with at the hotel Spielberg cast Jennifer Garner in the role after being impressed with her work in Alias he knew she was too busy in Alias to do a, a large role in the film but he offered her the role of the actress because he thought she would she was on the verge of being a movie star is what he said mm-hmm. um, the hardest part however to cast was Brenda Strong the young nurse that Frank meets and falls in love with and decides to marry after Chloe Sevigny dropped out, there was no real contenders for the role. 
They began a months-long search looking for the, the actress to play Brenda Strong. When talking about the casting process, Spielberg praised his casting director, Deborah Zane, for being one of the most resourceful casting directors he'd ever worked with. He said that she brought him several tapes of actresses for Brenda, but the when she brought him the tape of the then-unknown Amy Adams, he saw that this one was different. Um, this was, was this after Junebug? This is before Junebug. This was before Junebug. Oh, okay. And this is before Junebug. For some reason, I thought, okay, yeah. Junebug, I believe, is like, oh, seven? Really? Yeah, give me a second. Because that was like her breakout. Mm-hmm. Well, she said, I'll say this now, because she said that she thought this would be her breakout. So, oh, five. So, three years later. Mm. Uh, she thought this would be her breakout role. And she said, literally, after this movie, I didn't get a part for a year. Like, didn't get cast for a year. It, it kind of. She actually considered quitting acting after not getting a part for a, over a year after this movie. Mm. Um, and then Gene Buck happened. It kind of it broke her out officially. So Amy Adams, the one that she he watches the tape of Adams, realizes that she is the one. Uh, when when watching her, Walter Park said that Amy was as was as fresh and honest honest as anyone we'd seen. Spielberg said he then brought the tape to DiCaprio to show him who he thought would be good. He showed DiCaprio eight actresses to look at. And when it came to Adams' audition, DiCaprio asked to watch that one again. The only one he asked to watch again. Um, eventually, with the cast and director finally on board, we would near production of Catch Me If You Can. And that leads to favorite scenes, Thomas. And I will spoil it for you. This is the longest note section session I have on the movie <laughs> of things I love. So I won't go through all of them, but I had a lot. Okay. So what's one for you, Rob the Game? <clears throat> oh man, this is just one of those that there's so many like I, I this is one that that pops up on cable still a good bit and yeah. I I think I kind of steal this from the rewatchables, but it's like what's that scene when like when you turn it on and it's on something like what's the like I'm staying until like yep, this scene. This part. Mm -hmm. Um but uh one that that really stick like anytime I can that I try I try to watch is the the first time that Frank and Carl meet. Yeah. um is just it's so good and it's 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 really your first like real good like tom hanks like carl scene um that's 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 when he tells the joke right that's like leading up to that scene is when it's, he's got the like hey you want to hear me tell a joke it's yeah it's right before that yeah, when he's just like you want him you want him tom hanks and his accent uh knock knock <laughs> who's there Go fuck yourselves. <laughs> um, but it's really the first like we've we've seen. I think it's a, it's a great moment for Frank because we've he's always been like a little unsure of himself, you know, yes. he, and, and we've seen him start to get into a rhythm with mm -hmm. the with the checks and with the the flying or with the deadheading. But um, we've never like really seen him like, yeah, put put to it. And, and, and this is like his like sink or swim moment is this 16 year old boy convincing an FBI agent that he's with the, the CIA or whatever. Secret service. He, secret, secret, secret service. service. Yeah. 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 And he, and it, it's so good. Like he, the, the performance from DiCaprio is so good. And, 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 in, and in so much of this, of just what he's able to bring to the character as being someone who is, is like, there's always that scared teenage boy mm -hmm. underneath it somewhere. But then he's he's so good at like putting that face on and and just 
just going for it. Yeah, there's a shot in that in that scene where again, it's just the, it's the shot selection here is when Carl Hanray has the gun and DiCaprio is in the bathroom and he's washing his hands and he opens the door and it's his moment of hesitation where it feels like DiCaprio is feeling like like putting like he's like he's like it's like when you walk on stage he's gonna like last breath to walk on stage and play a part and mm. that's what it feels like he's doing and he walk he's like whoa what are you doing like yeah. and and he's just he's he's constantly moving which puts Carl on his heels mm-hmm. and he's just like why is this person so confident it's the against the the whole like the whole New York Yankees thing like the it's pinstripes, the yeah. pinstripes it's that. Uh, you're so you're starting at the pinstripes, you're not like really seeing what's happening, and that's kind of happening. He's just moving. He's like going up back in here, going there, uh, and then it's the confidence of like, um, let me see some credentials. Take my whole wallet. I don't care. Like it's the yeah. confidence. You trust it. I, I trust yeah, you. I'll get I trust it back you. from you when yeah, I come yeah, back. Yeah, like the idea we talked about this a con artist being the definition coming from confidence, and and that's what Frank does in these scenes. DiCaprio does as well. Is like he oozes this confidence that like you can't like help but believe is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, because he's constantly moving in that scene, and the camera also is mimicking that, you kind of can't help but like like as Carl believe him. Mm-hmm. And then Carl and, like, and as the audience, I you know Spielberg lays it out so well with we see the friend the friend who also lives in the building who's, <laughs> yes. who's the blind man and his and his helper. We see him at the beginning of the scene, and and so. But then when when Frank's like, oh, my partner's got him. He's taken out to the car right now. We're just like, what are you doing, man? You're doubling down too far. <laughs> and then he like and then he pulls the blinds open and you're like, oh, that's that's brilliant. He's, yeah. he's he knows that that guy's like almost to his car. It's it's just so good. And he'll just be like, what? And just get in his car and not say anything. Um, And then he had that payoff of like the um him ripping off the labels is the thing. Mm. You see you see him doing that early on. At his dad's like speech, he he rips off one of the Another labels. Great scene. Yeah, two mice. Cool. Yeah, two two mice fall into a bat of cream or whatever. One mice gives up, the other keeps keeps whatever it is. Um, but and yeah, so yeah, I love that scene. Is just great when they meet. I I think, and it, I mean, yeah, it's it's just a great. And it happens about like halfway through is what it is, but an hour into it, um. But to backtrack there is what I find fascinating with this movie. I think it's also one of Spielberg's, if not Spielberg's only true nonlinear movie. Because mm. most of the time Spielberg goes from just front to back for the most part. Nothing. He's not going, he's not going backwards in time a lot unless mm-hmm. he's doing it at the very start of a movie. This is one where he jumps around a little bit here. Yeah. He starts off kind of towards the, not the end, but starts off towards the end. Uh, then backtracks. He starts off with the opening game show thing first. And then it goes to the mm-hmm. f- France when he's been in prison for two years. And then we're, we go back to when he's a kid. They're flashing forward to when he's in New York and he's handcuffed with, they don't, they don't do it a lot. So it's, it's hard to notice in New York about to go back to like wherever, like a DC or wherever. And it's him on the plane. It's like all this stuff back and forth, back and forth. And it's interesting for him to do that. It's different than anything Spielberg's really done. I can't really think of another movie off the top of my head he done that he he does as much nonlinear work as he does with this one. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I could, I'll say this here, I could 
I could probably teach at least one lesson on how to use like color temperature in a movie from this movie. Because mm. I've always found it so interesting. And also camera camera moves. Because a lot of times early on, if you watch it, he uses for Frank's character, everything's kind of steady and like on sticks or on a dolly and it moves, it's smooth. When you see a lot of Carl stuff, it's all handheld and showing these kind of two different worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, also too, early on, a lot of Abagnale stuff, a lot of Frank stuff is all like a warm kind of tone to it, warm kind of temperature in the color of it all. Carl's is always blue for the most part until Carl sees Frank for the first time at the hotel. And then Frank or Carl's color temperature for all the scenes starts to become more warm. Like there's the scene when another scene I love is when they first talk on the phone together for the first time mm. uh, on Christmas. Carl, because all the FBI scenes usually are like a, a blue tint to it, like it's a cold prison in a way. The first time you see like warm light in the the FBI scene uh, headquarters is when Carl's on the phone. It's that that bright lamp in front of him that lights him up and makes him warm within this world of blue. And if you cut mm-hmm. to DiCaprio in his hotel room, he's in this kind of blue tint, like cool light. And so it's switched. It's because I think Frank is is realizing he's someone's catch, trying to catch him, and Carl is now aware of who he is, and it just develops more and more as where Carl's there's more warmth that comes throughout the film when it shows Carl, um, and then when he loses Frank the second time when Frank goes off to Europe, it goes back to blue for Carl, and then it goes back to warmth as he catches him again, uh, and then mm. by the end, final shot of the movie when they're in FBI headquarters, the first time in the entire movie, I think the FBI is a warm color and not blue because mm-hmm. they've actually kind of combined. They kind of come together. So yeah, that's, they both have friends now. They both have, they're both friends now. So just the, the switch <laughs> of color temperature affects the, he uses color temperature as part of a storytelling aspect of it. And that's his DP, Giannis Kaminsky as well, not just him. Um, but it's just kind of wild to see how they do, do that throughout the movie. And it might be, there might be a few things I'm missing here, but I just find it wild of how they use that to kind of tell the relationship story of these two characters. Sorry, yeah. had to jump into that and say that. Um, but yeah, what's I again? I said I love the scene when he's talking on the phone, uh, the Christmas, the first Christmas scene. All all the Christmas like scenes they have together um, are great. And when they're like kind of becoming, when Carl's kind of becoming the surrogate father for Frank in this weird way is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, kind of quickly. There's not one scene in particular, but but I do think the the little opening background stuff the 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 childhood the where he gets you know recognizing his dad as a as yeah. a con man um uh all of that is so i think well done mm-hmm. um you, you've got dicaprio playing it like an actual like innocent 15 year old at that point um but walking is is fantastic and 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 it i think it's it's very uh, Every time I rewatch it, I'm like, oh, this this all goes by like so much quicker than I remembered. It's it's so effective at kind of establishing his childhood and his relationship with his father, his relationship with his mother, where he learned all this stuff, why he left. And it all just like boom, 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 boom. And then it's like divorce, yeah. running away. We're on the road and and now we're good to go. Yeah. And what I love about that, that whole part. It's um, what Spielberg does that I think is fascinating with it because it's a good like kind of 
I also I, I also wrote down that Spielberg kind of like makes some movies that he never got to make in this movie, if that makes <laughs> sense. Like he makes the Bond stuff, but I think he kind of makes like a Douglas Sirk like family drama early on mm-hmm. with the with the way it's shot. And then later on we come back to the Christmas stuff when it when when DiCaprio runs up to the house at Christmas, which I think is just a beautiful scene. Mm-hmm. Um but he brings that back because I think the highest moment, the peak of, of Frank's story of like happiness is when he's at home with his parents They're in their old house and Christopher Walken's dancing with his mom mm-hmm. and they've spilt the wine. And that's that's Frank at his happiest, I feel like. Mm-hmm. And the moment later on, again, I'm jumping all over the place when Carl tells Frank that his dad's dead his dad and he tells him how he died Mm -hmm. brutal scene of how he tells it and spielberg doesn't show it that's the thing he goes the opposite of what you should do show don't tell spielberg lets carl tell it and you have to imagine this like the way Mm -hmm. the way frank does and it's it's a heart-wrenching scene and then what he does when, when when frank runs into the bathroom he cuts to that moment like it's it's frank remembering of when mm-hmm. Frank Sr. is dipping Paula and they're in their old house. Frank is literally remembering the last best moment he had mm-hmm. when they were all together. And that's this quick flash. And right there, it sums up everything that he's been ch- that the entire time Frank's been chasing that moment. And he keeps bringing it up. I got to get the parents back together. He keeps chasing that moment until he mm-hmm. can't. He literally can't anymore. And that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's I think you know when you're talking Christopher Walken and kind of the mm-hmm. the Spielberg father stuff, the the scene at at lunch in yeah as as when he's telling his dad he's a pilot, it's their first time catching up and like it's like been like a like a year maybe yeah. at that point yeah um you know it's the it's the where are you going Frank where are you going Frank somewhere exotic yeah uh Ben Ben Gertz would quote that to me all the time where are you going Brandon. <laughs> Where are you going? It's just, you know, it's 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 him trying to be like it, it it's I think it's his moment of realizing there's no going back. Yeah. You know, it's like this whole time he's been like, I'm gonna make some money, yeah. I'm gonna make things all right for my dad, and then like if if I can get money for my dad, then I can get my then my mom will come back. And in that moment it's just like my dad's never gonna change, my mom's never coming back to him. I'm I'm on my own. I, yeah. I got to do this for myself now. And I, and I think too, like I think Frank Senior is like hi, still hiding stuff from his son in that moment. Mm-hmm. Like he hasn't fully said like, "Yo, she left me for my best friend." Because that comes in later. I think the at the post the way he's at, when he's the postman um, mm-hmm. later on, he actually tells him that. But like, yeah, but but Walken's performance in that when he starts to cry, kind of talking about the family and this and that and his son. I, I know Spielberg on the behind the scenes stuff, like Spielberg is kind of like that wasn't planned. That was not part of the scene where Walken starts to cry and hold and like kind of tries to hold it back or whatever. That was mm-hmm. all Chris that was all Chris Walken performing that. And I remember Spielberg, he's like, Chris, that was amazing. Like he's just <laughs> like he's like, yeah, that was that was that was beautiful. Like I, I yeah I had nothing else to say about that. Like that was that was beautiful. Um and it's just, it's a great scene, and it's also just a great contrast when you come back to it later. Again, now we're in this whole that's a very warm scene, and then we come to this very cool scene when he sees him the second time. Now it's in this kind of dive bar, 
Um, and she, and that's a heartbreaking scene too. It's like it's that beautiful shot when he, when Frank, when the, when both Franks hug one another, and Spielberg does like close up of their hands, like grabbing each grabbing each other, mm-hmm. and then he, he pans up to the. I literally have like studied this film a lot, Thomas. If you can't <laughs> tell, um, and it, it's just what it's it's beautiful scenes with like that with the two dads, and I guess here, um. I guess uh, do you want to talk about this now is like of how personal this is for Spielberg it feels like like sure. yeah c- because there's things like that because I feel like if I remember correctly around this in his biography that he did on like HBO he talks about I think around this time he doesn't talk about this movie though I just kind of put two and two together I think it was around this time he started kind of getting back and like reconciling with his dad like they mm-hmm. kind of fallen apart. If you look at all of his other movies beforehand, it's about like the the dad being the issue or whatever with the kind of divorce families. But here's where like he kind of tries to like rewrite the history of how he's made dad looks and dad looks in movies, basically, or look at movies. Um, and in real life, I know is that Frank never Frank the real Frank Abagnale never saw his dad again after he mm-hmm. left. And that's in this scene. And I think that was in the script initially that he comes back and sees Frank, Frank senior a lot. But I think the thing that was changed that wasn't in the original script is that Frank's mom leaves Frank senior for Frank senior's best friend. That wasn't in the initial script and why that's a fascinating tidbit is because that's what happened to Spielberg's parents. Mm-hmm. And that's what spoiler alert. That's what he does in Fablemans is the thing, mm-hmm. and also too. In Fablemans, they were at their highest point when they were living in the house they were living at to be in the movie, and then once they move, that's when the downturn happens for the family. Yep. That's what happens here. Um, the con artist element of the Universal Studio stuff that Spielberg does here is very similar. I think, as I said earlier, he's making movies in this movie that he wished he could have made when he was younger. It feels like, like mm-hmm. him making a James Bond movie and like a brief section of this film, like mm-hmm. him getting the outfit, him getting the car, him doing this very James Bond esque meeting this hotel or meeting this beautiful actress in the hotel and making love to her. That's all like a part of a separate movie that you could honestly take out of this movie. And you probably don't lose anything, honestly, mm-hmm. but it's this great like little snippet that Spielberg gets to tell his James Bond story is the thing. Yeah. Like he's making a a war film uh, when he's a kid. Yeah. And then, and then you get in this, this is kind of my, my next uh, Mm -hmm. favorite scene too. But the, but the next thing I'm watching, if I, if I turn it on, I'm going to sit and watch the entire Amy Adams sequence. Yeah. And, and that's, it's like a little rom-com. It's it's like, you get a little, you get a little romantic comedy, meeting, meeting the in-laws, feeling out of place, yeah. You even like completely misplace him, take him down to the south. Yeah. Um, you know, it's and it and it turns into this this nice little charming romantic comedy for a little while, and then that and then that all blows up, which is a, a uh, I love love the scene. I mean, there's so many good scenes in in all of that. All the stuff at the hospital is great. The yep. um do you do you concur? I use that one a lot. I do too. Uh, I do too. <laughs> and I feel like most people don't know yeah. that, that is a, do you concur? Me and my buddy, with what, with yeah, what he said? yeah, Logan and I, but he's like, I concur, doctor, is what we'll say to, people, to each mm-hmm. other. 
but a- Amy Adams is just so she's she's got such a great energy yeah. in this movie. It's it's so fun, and I think they've got great chemistry. This and and you know it's it's this is another thing where like they they never lose. I think you could lose sight of the fact that Frank is still a teenage boy. Yeah, but I think it. I think DiCaprio. I think it, it like shines through so well. There's a, there's a great moment when he's like you know striking up a conversation with her about braces and he just yeah. says something about like oh i just got mine off like last year and you're like yeah because you were 15 last year <laughs> like, <laughs> um and and i but but i really love i love the scene when when frank or, or when carl shows up to the engagement mm-hmm. party mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and him like rushing her upstairs and her like him trying to explain to her what's going on and he's pulling all the money from on top of the and bed. most and most that's in one shot most that's in one shot by the way if yeah. you watch it yeah and then you know you've got the the dollar bill slipping out into the door and going down and that great shot of of carl opening up the the door and and amy adams is standing there clutching all the money while it's all blowing around and, and, it, it, and carl's so and, and carl's in the mirror watch it's it got mm-hmm. it it's really textbook and how how i'd like shoot a movie <clears throat> honest to god like it's just like the way he moved, they, they move the camera and like these long takes. It's just, but that's it, just the tension of like Carl is catching up is the thing mm-hmm. is that every time DiCaprio's in his own little movie or Frank's in his own little personal movie, Carl ruins it is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, God, and so then bad. that, and then that leads directly into like the, My, the he goes, the, he goes back to the, the TWA and, and then he's got the like, select a, a flight attendant contest and you've got the great like come fly with me yeah. um scene and then that that's when i'm like all right i can i can take a break real quick but like that's what that if, if i if i sit down and like he's about to he's at atlanta yeah. um at those I, I just recently found out that that those apartments were that, that was a real that was a real thing um oh. the riverbend the riverbend apartments oh wow and they say like a lot of the like swinging 60s culture like I was reading this thing. I was like, yeah, the swinging 60s started in Atlanta. And I was like, what the heck? And it was at that like Riverbend apartments where, wow. he, where he was living. Um, but yeah, if, if I'm watching it and like I see him in Atlanta, I'm like, all right, I'm I'm sitting down for, for the yeah. entirety of his like engagement. And uh, yeah, the, the you know, the two mice as a as a prayer, as a prayer. The, the, the dog is so good. Did he have what that was, little dog? What was that dog's was name? Dog's name? <laughs> like, oh, the dog passed away the dog dog died sir dog died <laughs> oh what a shame <laughs> martin sheen's so fun too and that what was the name of that little dog friend <laughs> um but yeah it's it's yeah i, I like how you put it, like that he has his little rhyme, i think this guy's start movies with the come fly me sequence i love that too because it's just like my question was what are the, what happens to those 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 girls when he goes to Europe? Like what like he just, left he just them leaves there. them? Like that's yeah. that's that's, that's yeah, like, like the, that's the dark part of Frank Abagnale Jr. He just like he gets and what I love it's like it's the subtlety that he like gets all the tall girls is the thing to like mm-hmm. block his so they can't see him when he walks in. Mm-hmm. Um some someone I I always like someone at the Q&A with Frank someone said like do you still keep in touch with uh whatever with the Amy Adams character, and he oh, was yeah, like, every time, yeah. he's like, "Do you think I was dumb enough to get engaged?" And <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> I, I ne- none of that happened. None of that was real. Yeah. I think. I think my last one would just be Carl showing up to the the printing, the printing yeah. press. I mean it's, that yeah, that sequence is great. 
when he, when he comes, you know, it's almost, it's, it's kind of like heat, you know, this is, yeah. like, it's like, they're so good together, but, but the whole movie is about keeping them apart until yeah. the last 20 minutes. And then the yeah. last, last 20 minutes are so good. Cause yeah. it's just yeah. the two of them playing off of each other. Yep. My favorite scene in the entire movie and possibly, it might just be one of my favorite shots that I, ever, honestly, I know this is maybe very hyperbolic here. But one of my favorite shots that I think about a lot is when Frank is going back to fly at the end. Mm-hmm. And it's that long corridor shot. And he like comes up over the ramp. That comes over the ramp. But it's li- it, it's if you take that shot, this is this is the idea of like putting a thought into a shot. If you take that shot, it's the whole movie. It's Frank comes in first. He's walking the corridor. Crawl comes behind him and starts talking to him and he's slowly catching up, like falling behind Frank the entire time, slowly catching up, slowly mm-hmm. catching up. And then it's that, that great line. Cause he, cause Car- Frank's upset that Carl didn't tell him the truth about his paint or about his uh, daughter and everything. And for, and Carl has that great line when Frank's like, why would you do that? He goes, you know why I do that? Sometimes it's easier living the lie. And at that point, Frank stops, Carl catches up and they're now, face to face and Carl's finally caught him and he just lets him go. Look, I'm gonna let you fly tonight, Frank. Cause I'm going to be, you be back Monday morning. And if you're not, I'm going to come after you and I'm going to catch mm-hmm. you again. And like, that's the whole movie right there. And, and then Carl just leaves. And it's just like, and again, talking the idea of like creating a father figure. It's the idea of that. Carl's now like kind of become the father where he's like, look, you've grown up. I've gotten you out here. If you want to mess up fine, I'm gonna come back and like, catch you basically but it's the mm. weekend you can do what you want to you're an adult blah, blah blah um but i just i love that scene i love that scene because it's such a well-paced scene and both of them are so great and the staging of it's great it's just yeah it's fantastic i spent four years trying to arrange your release had to convince my bosses at the fbi and the attorney general of the united states you wouldn't run why'd you do it you're just a kid i'm not your kid you said you were going to Chicago. My daughter can't see me this weekend. She's going skiing. You said she was four years old. You're lying. She was four when I left. Now she's 15. My wife's been remarried for 11 years. I see Grace every now and again. I don't understand. Sure you do. Sometimes it's easier living the lie. I'm going to let you fly tonight, Frank. I'm even going to try to stop you, because I know you'll be back on Monday. Yeah. How do you know I'll come back? Look, Frank, nobody's chasing you. So Onset Life. Filming for Catch If You Can would start on February 7th, 2002 in Los Angeles, California. And it would be one of the fastest productions of the latter half of Spielberg's career. They would film at a total of 147 different locations. Wow. In only 53 days. Wow. That's awesome. One number says 52. Another says 56. Uh, either way, it's in the 50s, but the, it's around 147 to 150 locations. Production designer Janine Opwal, who had recently made LA Confidential, said, I thought LA Confidential was difficult because I counted 93 sets in 40 or 50 location locations. When I first broke down catch if you can script, 
I counted well over 100 sets and I couldn't count anymore because I started to panic. DiCaprio said about the production that it was the fastest paced film he had ever worked on. He said we were constantly moving, but that's what was good about it. It was like a theater group. We were always creating new things and things and then moving to the next location. He also said scenes that were thought to take two to two days only would take an afternoon. Hmm. It seems one of the biggest keys to the production's ability to move as quickly as it did was Spielberg's relationship with his director of photography, Janusz Kaminski, and the camera crew. Um, Kaminski, Spielberg had worked with since uh, Schindler's List, which is in 1993, so almost a decade. Uh, Spielberg said, Janusz and I had the greatest working relationship. I set the camera, I blocked the scene, but it's Janusz who paints every shot. He is a master of light. Catch Me If You Can is a very upbeat movie, so he didn't want to go with a low, dark half-light. It's very bright and very colorful, which is a huge stylistic departure for us in our work together. Kaminsky said, We were not on sound stages. We were filming in existing buildings and on existing streets, so we had to work around certain limitations. We didn't have the luxury of removing walls or windows and putting the lights or camera wherever we wanted to. We had to compromise occasionally, but compromise is good because it forced you to be innovative. When asked about the amount of practical locations in such a short shoot period, Kaminsky said every day we were doing a whole set of mini moves and almost every other day we we're doing one big company move. Company move meaning we're basically picking everything up and moving to another location. Yeah. And yeah. as everything you know, goes on the truck and, and yeah. cast again, unpacked again. And as you know, that takes time. Like <clears throat> with travel yeah. and with traveling from place to place and everything up. Yeah. Yeah. Kaminsky's chief lighting technician, David, David Devlin, said the speed is largely about maintaining momentum. Steven would rather give up a great shot than not get the action he's looking for for right then and there. Sometimes when we say that wasn't good, for, that take wasn't good for us, Steven would reply, well, you missed your, cha- your, your chance because it was good for me and we're moving on. Uh, he's a wonderful guy, but he'll put the fear of God in you if you try to spend another 20 minutes lighting when he wants to go. <laughs> Uh, Mitch Dubin, the film's camera operator, credited the crew's, camera crew's ability to move fast due to them working together for almost a decade. Besides the amount of practical locations and company moves, there were also a ton of costume changes. The film's costume designer, Mary Zoffries, said, At first, I had the impression that he was going to be in his Pan Am pilot's uniform much of the time. Then I read the script again <laughs> and realized he would have over a hundred wardrobe changes. According to according to her as well, there were about 130 day players, like bit part actors who popped mm-hmm. up over and over again, and around 3,000 to 4,000 background extras employed in this movie. In contrast, however, in terms of costume, Tom Hanks' Carl Hanratty wore the same type of suit over and over again. Zafri said that Tom could have worn 20 suits in this movie, and no one in the audience would have known he wore 20 or just one, because it's essentially the same silhouette from one to another. Because it's also the fast, the quick pace of the shoot, Jennifer Garner shot all of her scenes in one day. Uh, all in all, the film would shoot in several different cities, including Los Angeles, Burbank, Downey, California, New York City, Ontario, California, Quebec City, which doubled for Mont Rashad, uh, the ending, uh, Montreal, mm-hmm. uh, Orange, New Jersey. Um, one of the sa- sets they filmed in was the famous TWA Flight Center at the JFK Airport in New York City. Mm-hmm. Right after it closed down as a working terminal, closed down in 2001, which is the year they shot this. That's uh, is that the one that's like a hotel now? I think so. Thing? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. the one that it's it's the one where he goes to get his 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 uh check cashed, and then they're mm-hmm. like, "Are you my deadhead?" Because it has the yeah. the interesting curvature of the architecture in there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very interesting. 
Um, production would wrap. Oh, it was 2002, not 2001. Uh, production would wrap on May 12th, 2002 in Montreal, finally completing the quick shoot of this movie. And that leads us to Aftermath. So when it came to creating the score for this movie, which we haven't talked about yet, uh, Spielberg's go-to composer, John Williams, wanted to try something different for this film. Spielberg said that Williams wanted to do a more progressive jazz score, which is very popular in the 1950s and 60s. What was unique for Williams in this score was that Williams mostly uses large orchestras for his scores, but in this one he used a more stripped-down version to capture the jazz of the era. Williams said, It's a more intricate story. The story is light and amusing, but it also is about serious subjects. The music had to have different shades. It's a comedic one moment and then tense as the FBI closes in on Frank. One particular figure who I think dominated the American film music scene, Williams said, in the 1960s was Henry Mancini. He states, he, ta- he typified the best of that stylish, jazzy approach to films that we now associate with that period so nostalgically. I actually was the pianist in Henry Mancini's orchestra at the beginning of both of our careers. I played on Peter Gunn recordings and on Breakfast at Tiffany's and was very close to him personally as well as musically. Catch If You Can has been a wonderful opportunity for me to revisit that part of myself that's been lying dormant for a few decades now. It was a kind of regression and one I enjoyed very much. So briefly, let's talk about that score because we, you and I have talked mm-hmm. about this. That it's one of his most underrated scores, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it's very playful is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote down, like, it's very, Harry Mancini makes sense. I wrote down like Quincy Jones, like Quincy Jones is kind of upbeat, like um, uh, jazz scores. I think of like Duke Ellington score in, uh, and I'm even murder is another one as well mm-hmm. of that kind of that like very jazz infused like sweet sweet smell like success and the heat of the night like those type jazz scores it, and it really yeah it, but I mean yeah Henry Mancini's a great one to you know even Pink Panther um yeah yeah I love that and the combination of of using the um that kind of animation style for yeah. the um opening kind of uh making that whole the whole design of the film because i love the the poster as well and, mm-hmm. and making that all kind of a throwback to um <clears throat> uh saw bass saw bass yeah. yeah um anatomy of a murder there you go yeah um <laughs> but yeah it's it's so good it's a jazz score but it's 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 fun it's playful but it's also a little tense it's a, yep. that little do 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 uh oh it's yeah it's great I love it. Um, but it's it's such a good call that sets you right in the in the right era and in the right mindset of that. Uh, that is like it. You hear it and you're like, yeah, it's it's like a con movie. It's like you yeah. said, it's got that 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 fun energy of a caper, and it's still got tension. It's not it's not playing everything like a joke completely, but yeah. um, but it, yeah, it's I think it's it's such a such a great call to to have approached it like that. I agree. I agree. Really, I mean, yeah. Williams just really really making some great like moves at this point. I mean, he's always making great moves, but like it's right after Harry Potter, I think it's 01. Mm, so just mm-hmm. really really great scores all in all right here. Um the film will be released on it would premiere on December 18th, 2002 at Westwood in the Westwood Village. Um uh it would then be released nationwide December 25th, 2002. And it's marketing DreamWorks was very careful to market the film as inspired by a true story mm-hmm. to avoid controversy similar to that, similar to that, to them that surrounded a beautiful mine in 2001 
and the hurricane in 1999 with Denzel Washington, both which deviated from history, but people thought it was a true story. So very specific. Hey, we're going to do uh, inspired by mm-hmm. uh, as promotion for the show. They actually uh, game show network aired the 1977 episode of t- TV show to tell the truth, which is what starts the movie. Uh, yeah, yeah. They used that as promotion for the film in late December of 2002 and January of 2003. Um, the movie would be received incredibly well. Uh, currently sits at 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. Many praising DiCaprio's performance. Mostly everyone's saying it's not Spielberg's best movie and not a major Spielberg work, but it's it's a, it's a watchable effort. Or as, <laughs> as Ebert said, effortlessly watchable movie. But I think that's what makes it hold up so well. Yeah. Is that, is that, yeah, it's not like, it's not, he's not, it doesn't feel like he's swinging for the fences as like a Jurassic Park or a Schindler's. Yeah, it's, not, it's not flashy Spielberg, but it's, it is, it is great filmmaking Spielberg. I, I feel yeah. very different movies, very different movies, but I feel, I feel kind of the same way about Munich, which I think has had mm-hmm. kind of a resurgence of appreciation. It's like he's not, he's not trying to, to, you know, he he's not trying to blow you away in the filmmaking of Munich. He's trying to tell you a really good story, and he does. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just there's so many different there's so many different types of Spielberg. You know, you I agree. Go in for. And this is this is what I I I haven't told us too is that Spielberg is at his best usually when you can tell he's having fun, mm-hmm. and 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 he might say he's having fun every time. But this is like it's more like there's something about we talked about this recently on our Patreon. Uh, Dave and I did about the the Fright Night remake with Colin Farrell. It'll come into play. Mm-hmm. It was a DreamWorks film, and Spielberg actually helped out a good bit on that film because they said he likes taking like he likes giving um, attention to the smaller films that they're doing mm-hmm. because it reminds him of his earlier days of like making movies when he was a kid and making them like fast and on the cheap. And this feels like he's like, again, talking about the whole Fableman's aspect. This feels like that's what he's doing here. He's like, hey, we're going to make a really low budget film, low budget for his and his eyes uh, and compared to like Minority Report. And we're going to make like we're going to make it fast and we're going to make it like really fun and just have a great time doing it is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that shows up here. And yeah, so it would also be a box office success. So the budget for the film was... $52 million. It would make $352 million worldwide. Wow. Yeah. Recouping the uh, seven times over its budget, basically. It was wow. the 11th highest grossing film of the year. The number, the 10th the highest grossing film of the year, however, Thomas, was Minority Report, also mm. by Spielberg. Uh, double the budget and only made $6 million more. Can you just picture releasing this type of movie nowadays? <laughs> if it made $352 million, that would be insane. Like that's just, yeah. that's, that's, that's remarkable. And kind of the current market nowadays, like this, this would be like a mini series on like Hulu or HBO or, or I'm sorry on max. What's HBO max. I don't know. You tell me Thomas, um, <laughs> but on max, it just feels like one of those that's, they make this nowadays. Um, so with all that, its appreciation of this film has grown over time. Uh, it received two Oscar nominations when it was released, one for uh, Christopher Walken's performance in Best Best Supporting Actor at the Oscars, and then Williams was nominated for Best Original Score 
at the Oscars. Let me let me read. I think we've actually talked about this recently because we talked about it with adaptation because it was the same year. Um, so Chris Cooper won for best supporting actor that year. Mm-hmm. Um, for best original score. Where's score at here? Uh, Frida won for best original score. Oh. I can't say I've seen Frida, so I can't say... I've seen it. I can't say I remember the score yeah. particularly. The same year was also Far From Heaven by Elmer Bernstein, which is also a great score. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Hours from Philip Glass and A Road to Perdition from Thomas Newman. Wow. Kind of some he- some heavy hitters, like like mm-hmm. composer-wise. Uh, and then Elliot uh, Goldenthal for Frida is what won. Um, and then for, I think, like the BAFTAs, it got, uh, yeah, the BAFTAs, it, it walked and won for Best Supporting Actor at the BAFTAs. Um, Williams was nominated. Uh, Mary Sofries was nominated for Costume Design, Designing. And Jeff Nathanson was nominated for uh, Screenplay. Which is wild to me that like it didn't get any of those nominations to the Oscars. Like mm-hmm. for not costume designing, for not production design, I think it deserved kind of all of those. Uh, DiCaprio would get a Golden Globe nomination for the film. Uh, Williams also gained a, a Grammy nomination for this movie. Um, so with all that, Thomas, what worked about Catch Me If You Can? Uh, I think the. Spielberg. I think Spielberg making this movie works 100%. <laughs> oh, yeah. Especially as, as, you know, I think I don't think we, we kind of talked about this is coming on like the heels that you talked about Minority Report. This is coming on the heels of his like 9-11 movies. Yep. Um, yep. It's and 9/11 he got like, like so dark for a little while there and like very and um, you know, he had that kind of I, I don't think anybody would call War of the Worlds or, or Minority Report like real but he had that he got he got gritty with yeah, it you know yeah um and and for this to like come right on the heels of that is is so it, it felt like such a change for him and and you know then that turned into the terminal and then it and then uh but but this specifically it, it feels like such a an interesting entry into his his catalog and like we said it, it's something that came out like incredibly personal to him mm-hmm. and just so tight and controlled and fun and yeah everything about it i think is is fantastically pulled off and then what works as well are, are the cast yeah especially our two leads yeah it is dicaprio is is perfect in this i think and then hanks is is so much fun and yeah anytime anytime the two of them get together it's it's that it's that DiCaprio and Walken, like like you've got to have that DiCaprio and Walken dynamic to then make that DiCaprio and Hanks dynamic mm-hmm. work later on, and all of it just works so well with each other. Yeah, and like DiCaprio, like I think this is like a pivot for him mm-hmm. because really, again, I, I talked about what he did before this, but like he does this and Gangs New York in the same year, and then it's The Aviator, The Departed, Blood mm. Diamond revolutionary road body of lies um shutter island inception like that's like a big run yeah of like he's making prestige movies like, i like catch me can onward catch me can gangs new york pair with the aviator really turns dicaprio into what we now know him today i feel like yeah yeah that um, that's that is like prestige star yeah. it, it's like it's like tiger beat heartthrob yeah what's he gonna do with his career mm-hmm 
prestige star. Yeah. So now like now he can be Daniel Lewis and pick whatever movie he wants to work on essentially. Um, so yeah. And Hank and Hank's I'll mention a little bit later, but Hank's on this, a massive run that still continues, I think for a few years later. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What worked, I think technically the movie works just, we talked about Spielberg, but I think Josh Kaminsky's work is brilliant, is brilliant. Uh, production design team is, is amazing. Um, costume design score. I think every aspect of it really works is a thing. So, say all that thomas did anything not work with this movie i guess we can be as nitpicky as we want to here because oh man it's tough it's tough you know you need to say something (laughs) um i mean maybe more more james brolin scenes i don't know like yeah (laughs) love james brolin big james brolin fan um Actually, I worked with James Brolin. I like I like him a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it's yeah, just a tough, tough call. I it's one of those I've watched so many times. So I'm like, yeah. this is just how it. This is how it flows. This well, is how it works. Well, let me bring up one thing again. And this, this does not work because because I had someone who told me that the that did that I said earlier that the Jennifer Garner scenes they're not really needed for the plot wise for the plot of the movie, mm. which that's this person argued. I get that, but I think what it does, we talk. This movie's it's interesting because a lot of vignettes that just kind of are tied together in some way. But I think what makes that scene usable to kind of defend it and saying why it worked actually is that while it has Garner and and DiCaprio like separate from the whole story, what Spielberg does that's very smart is that he cuts back and forth between DiCaprio basically in a hotel with this beautiful starlet, and Carl is down at the laundromat doing his yeah, laundry the, with a bunch of pink, old ladies the pink you know, shirts the pink yeah. shirt and it just it shows you like the contrast between these two people's lives is that frank is not thinking about anything other than making love to this woman and getting this woman in his bed basically and carl's just like thinking about frank at the laundry laundromat and my clothes are ruined because this old lady put a with a it's like just the difference between the two characters is just interesting so i think that's why it's but I also I, I also think there's something I always think of that scene as like that's you know he he obviously makes these references to like as as a teenage boy he's very aware of who who she is yeah. and and the fact that he I always view that as like a point where like the fact that he flips that into a con of her is like his like that is his like he is a utter professional now interesting it, like like yeah. he he meets this person that it's like you could and 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 you know it's got all that James it's it's the kind of the point of this like oh i'm gonna fashion myself after james bond where it feels very immature you know it's like it plays out exactly like a teenage boy who just got a bunch of money yeah and then he has this moment presented to him that's just like you could you can just be an immature teenage boy right now and he still flips it into a con and makes money off of her and that's like oh this guy like this guy never stops hustling i agree and i also this too with that scene because i remember this is something that was brought in film school thomas that that always hit me is that they break a big like rule here with how they shoot this scene mm-hmm. it, did you know you know what i'm talking about because basically say jennifer garner's on the left side of the frame mm-hmm. when she's talking and they're they're on the opposite sides of the, the of the hallway what you should do if you cut to frank he should be in the right side of the screen right right side of the frame as like they're matching he, spielberg actually keeps him in the left side so it's like it's basically the where this just shows you someone who understands the the idea or the how to control the human eye 
is you gotta that, know the rules to break the rules. Is that he just allows you to stay on one side of the screen and not ping pong back mm-hmm. and forth. And so he does that to where you're actually unaware that he's breaking a rule right here. Rule, very loose term, as I say that. But it keeps you on the image that he wants you to stay on by not moving mm-hmm. you across the screen. So it has a it has a quicker pace to it. So I love that we turned the scene that into our what didn't work section talked about why it worked no i think it does work yeah that was when when i was i remember the first time i i saw that movie i i didn't i mean i was probably a little too young to understand what was going on you know what the what the yeah the main text of the scene was but i also like didn't get the con of that scene yeah like i I didn't get how he like made money off of her and and then to like come back to i I remember like rewatching it later i'm like oh he just she just paid him (laughs) yeah she's paying four hundred (laughs) dollars as it was what a great con what a great con uh and that was part of i think abignale's story when he was talking to carson in 78 that was Mm -hmm. one of the 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 sections he talked yeah he's he's never he's never said who it was but he says it was a famous model yeah um yeah i don't really have not much like maybe i mean it's like i think if you had to pick maybe nathalia bay but i think she's good in it's like i I, it's like she's good in it but she doesn't steal moments like everyone else in the movie if that makes sense that's like make you a sarah lee yeah that's maybe the only thing i don't know it's like that's and i'm really grasping at straws there honestly is the thing um So yeah, but yeah, I love all 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 the bit players too. Ellen mm-hmm. Pompeo pops up. Elizabeth mm-hmm. Banks pops up. Is this yours? This yours? Must have fallen right off your neck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, no, no. And then he goes, <laughs> yeah. um. All right, moving on to film facts. Tom Hanks's character, Carl Hanratty, was made up for the movie. He's actually an amalgam of several different agents who pursued Frank. The big one, I believe, was John Shea, Joseph Shea, Joseph Shea. Yeah, I know there were two in the book. There were it, it really boils down to like two guys that he says they kind of combined to make Carl, and and those two guys were like the ones that not only were the most integral in like catching him, but the ones that he stayed close with close afterwards. With afterwards, yeah. Because <clears throat> um, I do, I do remember. You know what? This might be stepping. Might be stepping on something for you. So I'll let you. I'll let you keep going. Okay. Well, you can go ahead and say it. That's fine. I was just gonna say I remember when the musical was going down. Yeah. And they Aaron Tveit actually came. I didn't know who Aaron Tveit was at the time, but he came to Charleston and like spent a weekend with Frank. And then when oh. it premiered, when it premiered, Frank took whichever whichever of the ones, not whichever of the Carls has. I think they've they've both since passed. Yeah. But, jo- um, Joseph Shea had passed away, so it was probably the other one. Um, well they both they they both passed at that point but one of them had like three daughters and and frank frank took his his daughters to the um broadway premiere with him yeah that was one i was gonna that is one i'm bringing that's fine we can talk about here (laughs) it's like well it's funny because dirty rotten scoundrels also had a musical as well Mm. also by the way norbert leo butts was in that one and he's also in catch me the candy plays carl handwriting when it it opened on broadway no way I actually saw it on Broadway, by the way. I don't know if I've really? told you this. I saw it on Broadway. And I, I've weirdly seen this musical twice. I saw it on Broadway. And then I had a friend that was in it, I think down Orange County. And I went to see it. And I remember this old lady, these two old ladies. I got like pretty good seats. And this old lady who sat next to me like wanted to see my ticket to prove I could sit there because I was like the youngest person in the entire <laughs> like section. And I was like, yeah. 
And she just goes, she's like, have you seen this before? I was like, yeah, I saw it on Broadway. She goes, oh, how are we holding up compared to them? And I'm like, <laughs> what do you want me to say? I don't, it's good. Like, there's no Aaron Tveit. I'm sorry. Is there Aaron Tveit normally <laughs> about? That's all I'm saying. Uh, yeah, I, it was, it didn't run for a long time. Uh, the musical, I think it got some Tony nominations. Mm-hmm. The Tonys are odd because it's like, it's sometimes a select group that gets that, that plays every year. So it's like, you only have to like choose from like seven or eight musicals, but it received, uh, four Tony nominate nominations, one yeah, for I think it's, I think best it's musical. remembered. Yeah. And then Norbert Leo Butts won for Carl. Yeah. Oh, Cash wow. Can 2011. And then uh, he did. He won for he won for Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Wow, he won for Dirty Rotten Scoundrels and for Catch Me If You Can. Wow, uh, big con guy. Yeah, and one of the only nine actors to ever win Best Actor in a Musical twice. Norbert Leo Butts, shout out. I think he went to Alabama's Master of Fine Arts program, like their Shakespeare program at one point. Uh, roll Tide, Roll Tide, baby. Um, but uh, it's a good musical. I like the musical. Um, uh, talking about the opening titles of the movie, uh, they used a stamp-style animation for it. Uh, the the duo that created it were Olive, Oliver Kunsel and Florence Degas. Uh, they described they created sequence by stylistically transposing the handmade design of Saul Bass using decidedly modern means, and required the actual rubber stamps be, rubber stamps be carved out for each character featured. Um, the house that Mrs. Abagnale has after she remarried. Was the same house in Father of the Bride 1 and Father of the Bride 2 with Steve Martin and Diane Keaton. Oh, yeah. Uh, last thing I have, this was the seventh movie in a row that starred Tom Hanks that made over $100 million at the U.S. box office. Hanks. What a run. What a just mm-hmm. unbelievable. Um, I think it would end. Let me see when this would end. This run would end. Probably Lady Killers, if I had to guess. <laughs> yeah, La- Lady Killers is where it ended, and that was in 2004, so two years later. I mean, he also has Road to Perdition the same year as Catch Me Can. That's wild to me, man. Tom Hanks. Um, that's it for that. So moving on to the awards, the Beatrice Strait Award, actor, actress, limit scenes that kills it. Walking. Is Walking limited, Ooh, or is he supporting? Interesting. Interesting. If it's not Walking, it's Amy Adams. But I would pick Adams. I think it's Adams over because Adams is only in for a section. Mm-hmm. Walkins throughout the entire thing. Because Adams is only in like the few hospital stuff. It, it might be pushing a little bit, but I think we can count her limited. I think that works here. All right. Well, so Amy Adams, I think, yeah, I think the scene that she does when she like, uh, like tells DiCaprio that she like had an abortion. And by the way, again, there's like dark undertones in this movie weirdly, but they don't like hit on, but see, I did like she had an abortion and her parents kicked her out. And so I think she never come mm-hmm. back again, but she's great in that scene. Uh, the scene when she starts making out with, um, with DiCaprio, mm-hmm. Appar- apparently Spielberg's direction to her was that this is so weird. He's like, pretend like you're starving and that DiCaprio's a cheeseburger. <laughs> Is what it was. She she definitely plays that note. She does. She does. Very it's hilarious. Well. It's a, yeah. it's a yeah. I'm not a virgin. I had an abortion two years ago. My parents had a friend do it. Man, my father plays golf with. And then when I got better, they kicked me out of the house. 
I had an abortion and I wasn't their daughter anymore. I'm so sorry. Please don't be mad at me, please. Please don't be mad at me. No, no. Please don't be mad at me. Now, what if, what if I spoke to your parents, right? Maybe I can straighten things out, huh? I ask them all the time, but they said I still can't come home. All right, the Annie Potts X Factor Award. Supporting actor, actress is the most memorable. That's Chris Walken. Chris, Chris, Chris Walken. Walken. Yeah, Christopher Walken here. I mean, just so many. Like, where are you like, going, Frank? Where are you going, Frank? Somewhere exotic. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not going to do a Walken impersonation. That's that's <laughs> that one. That that one's hard to do. Like, what? Well, yeah. like, I feel like Walken is someone that everyone tries to do, but no, not everyone's. No one's really good at. Like, there's only a few mm-hmm. that I've heard. It's always like, you know, everyone tries to throw that in there. Again, not good at it. Um, because mm-hmm. because Walken's speech. It's just so interesting, but because it's so different, everyone thinks they have it down, but no one really has the down pat is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's again, the restaurant scene is kind of his kind of pinnacle of the movie with him. But he, he's amazing. He's amazing mm-hmm. in that moment. You're the best damn pilot in the sky. It's not what you think. I'm just a co-pilot. You see these people staring at you? These are the most powerful people in New York City. And they keep peeking over their shoulders, wondering where you're going tonight. Where are you going, Frank? I had nobody staring at me. Someplace exotic? Just tell me where you're going. Los Angeles. Hollywood. Hollywood. All right, the Gene Hackman MVP award, person who carries the movie, director, actor, composer, cinematographer, etc. Oh man, that's a tough one. I don't think it's tough at all. <laughs> I mean, I I, w- I would give it to Leo because it's such a challenging he is performance. Good. He but, is good. Yeah, but I I think controversial controversial opinion here. I think this is the best movie that Steven Spielberg's made about his childhood. <laughs> Here's the thing. While I I love the Fablemans, I also agree with you because I just think I think it's just a it's a great. That's why I was a little. I, I put this in my letterbox review for Fablemans, but I I think it's a little insulting when everybody was like, Fablemans is like so personal. It's it's the most personal movie ever made. I was like, you can make a personal movie that isn't written about you. Like yeah. Catch Me If You Can is an yeah. extremely personal movie. Yeah. For Steven Spielberg. Well, he's always said he's like he's he's never fully gone into something directly about his life, but he's like touched on it. Mm-hmm. This to me feels like it's the most like he's touching the most into it is the thing. Mm-hmm. It's just he's replaced filmmaking with con with being a con artist, basically, is what it is. Yeah. Um, And it's essentially like I, I, I what you could argue, though, is that Fableman's is like his childhood. And this is like the. I graduated high school and I'm trying to make yeah. be a movie. It's this like, like it's, picks it's, up where Fableman leaves yeah, off. <laughs> kind of, yes, exactly. It kind of does. That's kind of my argument. It's it's like it's right before he meets John Ford. It's kind of or like right after he meets John Ford. Mm-hmm. But no, I I think Spielberg here. I think just I again I certainly I think it's one of his most underrated masterpieces. It probably is his most underrated masterpiece. Um, I think it's a damn near perfect film, and he 
it's when he really masters the like I have my crew at least camera wise that he has his crew of people that he has used for over and over again. Like in the document and the like behind the scenes stuff, he kind of they do like a cheers with DiCaprio, and he's like, "Thanks for joining our like our team of our family that we've had together for like almost a decade now because I've been working together for so long." And that's what makes Spielberg so great is that he has the John Williams the John Williams does all of his scores that Michael Kahn edits all of his movies. Um, mm-hmm. that Giannis shoots all of his all of his movies and and Williams and Connor are getting older so more people coming in possibly to do those jobs but he uses the same people over and over and that's what can make so many movies so quickly um, and like you said it's right before he's about to go into this very interesting period of his 9-11 trilogy with Terminal, War of the Worlds and Munich is a thing mm-hmm. and he takes a break for like three years and does Indiana Jones 4 um, <laughs> but, but yeah I think here is where he's having fun I can tell it feels like he's making an, a movie that his younger self would have loved to have watched. That's the key. That's what I think it is. I think it's when he would. And he says that he talked about, he compared this movie to like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid and the staying is that kind of like, like interesting rogue type characters, basically mm-hmm. doing fun scenes. Um, so yeah, Steven Spielberg, Gene Hackman, MVP award. You want to talk to me? Let's talk face to face. All right. I have my suite at the Stuyvesant Arms, room 3113. In the morning, I leave for Las Vegas for the weekend. You think you're gonna get me again? You're not going to Vegas. You're not in the Stuyvesant Arms. You'd love for me to send out 20 agents Christmas Eve, barge into your hotel, knock down the door so you can make fools out of us all. I'm really sorry if I made a fool out of you. I really am. Uh, no. No, listen, no, I really no. am. I you, you do not feel sorry for me. The truth is, I knew it was you. Now, maybe I didn't get the cuffs on you, but I knew. Oh, people only know what you tell them, Carl. Well, then tell me this, Barry Allen Secret Service. How did you know I wouldn't look in your wallet? The same reason the Yankees always win. Nobody can keep their eyes off the pinstripes. Leads to final questions, Thomas. If you were to cast this movie when it was initially going to be made, when they bought the rights in 1980, so in the 1980s, mm-hmm. who would you cast in this movie? Uh, okay. I think, I think my, my mind, I think if it was made, uh-huh. it would have been, it would have been Michael J. Fox. I'm not, oh, I'm not, going, I'm not going with that. That would have been good though. I will say it would have been good. It would have been, been good. good. Uh, I'm going Kevin Bacon. Okay. That's uh, yeah. 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 Going Kevin Bacon, like, like eighty four Footloose era Kevin Bacon. Footloose Kevin Bacon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> as uh, the Christopher Walken character, uh, Peter Falk. Oh, that's a good pick. That's a really good pick. I think he's got that kind of. I think he could definitely play like a like a huckster, like a lovable loser kind of yeah kind of guy. Yeah. Um, f- for Carl, this one's this one's a little out of left field, but. I feel very strongly about it for Carl, uh, Charles Durning. And I'll, oh, I like Charles Durning. Yeah, I'll, Charles Durning played played a lot of like mean cops, uh, but I Charles I think I love one of my favorite Charles Durning performances is like Tootsie. He's great, like, in Tootsie. 
anytime he's like he, he could be so like warm and, mm-hmm. and comedy and he could also be like a like a bad guy but he yeah and he's great in talk to the afternoon as the cop but he's like yeah. kind of, he's the he's kind of the good cop who's trying to get everything yeah. like yeah i think he's great in that and so i think i think he i think he could be really good as as carl as being like having that kind of like especially kind of with what he brings to a movie yeah. he shows up and you're like oh it's charles durning is gonna like take him down and then you see kind of this fatherly you know affection for this guy kind of develop throughout the movie yeah i think it'd be great i, I agree i agree um do you have a brenda oh yeah uh leah thompson 100 percent. oh that's a good one so we got kevin bacon as frank charles earning as, as frank senior i'm sorry i'm sorry, sorry. Was, frank senior was uh peter falk peter falk yeah peter falk is frank senior charles earning as carl leah thompson as brenda I have a cast. I have a cast. Um, and then Catherine Deneuve is the is the French mom. I don't know who's who could be. Yeah, Catherine Deneuve. Catherine I guess. Deneuve. I, yeah. Like uh, after the hunger, after the hunger, she's uh she's in this. Um, I yeah, because I, I just recently watched for the first time. Um, uh, what was it called the 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 back window? It was Isabelle Huppert, and uh, mm. she was not she was not old enough at that point because that's that's around that same time. Yeah. No, I agree. But Catherine Deneuve is, is right in the right. Catherine Deneuve and Peter Falk. What a couple, Thomas. What a couple. Um. All right. Does this film fit with any other genres, Thomas? I think it's it's weirdly a coming of age movie. And, it is. And you could, it is. You could blink. You could blink and you miss it because Frank himself is so concerned with with hiding the fact and is very good at hiding the fact that he goes from 16 to 18 in this movie. Um, But it is it is about a boy kind of losing his innocence and having to figure out what kind of man he, he wants to be. And he just happens. Whereas normally it's like, oh, you pick one thing in a coming of age movie. He picks like four or five before he finally uh, lands on it. But um but yeah, ultimately, I think it is a it is a really good uh, kind of, of look at a at a the maturing of a of a young man and mm-hmm. and having having to to face up to the real world and and ultimately find a job. <laughs> yes, exactly. And like that's the job. He's like that's the job I do every day. I have to do this every day. Yeah, mm-hmm. every day um, until until your time's up. Um, yeah, coming of age again. We talked about how like, Spielberg kind of breaks down the multiple genres in, the world, like, in certain sections where we have this mm-hmm. like rom com moment. I think you also kind of have this cat and mouse like Hitchcock thriller, is what I would say. Um, to some extent with with Carl chasing him, it's very much like a to catch a thief type thing. Like one of those like fun like uh, uh, like European Hitchcock movies, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, the, like a Cary Grant type film that hits like a North yeah. by Northwest or whatever. Where like it has dark undertones, but still like a light a light watch basically um i yeah i think it's just, it's just kind of a fun uh, yeah it's, it's, a, it's a breezy breezy coming of age con movie is the thing mm-hmm. um and then how does this film fit with the con artist genre uh i think it i think it uses i think spielberg is using the genre here to tell this kind of coming of age story and this yeah. this story about father figures it it, it it's <clears throat> at its at its heart it's it's almost a character study of these of these mm-hmm. two people and it's not it's not about some big con Mm-mm. um 
you know, it's not building up to, to one big job or anything in that way. It is it is a study of how this boy used con con artistry mm-hmm. uh, to to find his his way in the world. Um, so, yeah, it is it is kind of a almost like a postmodern. It, it, it's it knows the framework of a con movie. It knows it knows the, the points to hit and, yeah. and it's becoming a, a character drama or you know dramedy in, in instead of that yeah i i agree again it's and, and talk about perspective it kind of has it in there it's not it doesn't have the usual like perspective like we're the ones being conned but at a certain point it's like we're only seeing stuff through carl's eyes a lot of the time mm-hmm. and we're just seeing like how frank just disappears and come and like oh my favorite we even talk about was like when when we talk about when 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 Frank runs to the bathroom after he finds about his dad, but when Carl comes in, when Tom Hanks comes in and they break down the bathroom door and he's just gone, mm-hmm. and Hanks's look, we're like, where the hell did he go? Like doesn't say just the way he's like, but it's like we don't even know what he did. We have an idea just by Hanks's reaction. This guy just climbed to the toilet and is out. But the idea of like certain scenes where we're just following Carl's perspective instead of Frank's. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, light kind of tone, breezy. I think it's a very uh, caper-like story, as we were saying. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of, again, I wonder if we'll see this more of like, we talked about Daryl Rotten Scoundrels, how it's a very well-structured movie. I think this is very similar, where like, because there's multiple cons, it actually allows to be like a very vignette-heavy movie, I guess. And I wonder if other films we do will have that as much, like if they're going to be stru- as structured as well as these two. Um, cause this one also like has like 30 minute Marcus when he decides to be a pilot, 45 minute Marcus when, when Carl comes in the, the matter, our mm-hmm. Marcus, when they meet, it's a very like well-timed movie in terms of its structure. And I wonder if all these will be that like, like that as well. Cause Dragon Rotten Scoundrels also had that strength too. So, so yeah, but that is it on catch me if you can, Thomas, we can now retire if we wanted to, cause that was this is the song. <laughs> no, um, we're gonna keep going, uh, next week. This is another big, I think, bucket list movie for us, Thomas. We went a very different way. We could have gone with the first one, but we're going with the second one. And we're mm-hmm. going to get, it's going to be controversial, I feel like. Next week, we're doing Ocean's 12. Yeah. 12. Not 12. 11. You heard, not, you heard not that 11, correctly. Not 11. Not 13. Not 8. 12. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of controversy. I'm, and I'll, I'll may say this. For later but i know some people who like hate this movie and i didn't like it either for a while and then when i mm-hmm. revisited it let's just say i have a different opinion on that movie we're going <laughs> to talk, talk about that next week for our third part of our con artist series but also be sure to follow our, our play, patreon right now right now we just did a fright night i finally got to do fright night talking with david um we did all three Fright Night movies, one, uh, the first one, part two, and the remake. Uh, so go do that. Thomas and I also talked about Little Shop of Horrors last month for our monster movie uh, series. This month, I believe we're talking about a fish called Wanda. And then one other one. We'll figure that out as we go. Maybe Magic Men. Who knows? We'll see. Um, but stay tuned for that. Uh, again, whoever, if you support us, thank you so much. If you haven't, be sure to do that if you can. The Patreon kind of helps us keep the show going and kind of keeps us keeping the schedule and giving you more content. Uh, you can get more exclusive content. If you join our Patreon, we have three tiers. We have a $1, $5 and $10 tier. 
Um, you get emails, you get our, e our newsletter, you'll get recommendations, you'll get exclusive content. It's a great kind of service if you like hearing us talk about movies. Uh, and hopefully we can do more as the year goes on. But that's it. We have that's all we have in this episode. If you have any questions for us, feel free to contact us at CineNationPodcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments. We might put them on a QA and a episode again at some point. Who knows? We'll read them. We'll answer them. Uh, if you're a new listener to the show or if you're a fan of the show and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us by now, be sure to do so so you can stay up to date on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us a review on your preferred podcast platform. The the Yankees always win because of the pinstripes, and five star reviews would definitely be the pinstripes for our podcast. So let's let's That's get true. some of those going. No one, not everyone listens to it. They just want to see the five stars. So I don't mm. know who's Mickey Mantle in this in this instance, but we we do we are the five stars are are the pinstripes. Um, and finally, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterbox, and TikTok. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye. Bye.